Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. I think that version of me had sort of died actually. Like, and I had become not a completely different person, but um, someone who was meaningfully differently motivated, I think in the kinds of things I cared the most about um, and the, the ways in which I wanted to use like my art making. I'm Jordan Kistner and you're listening to Thresholds a weekly series of free-ranging conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterwards. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Quick note, I, Jordan, am taking a brief break from hosting this spring to work on some other projects. And while I am off mic, we are really lucky to have Mira Jacob occupying the interviewer seat. Mira is a novelist, a graphic memoirist, and an all-around brilliant mind and excellent conversationalist. She was our very first Thresholds guest, and I have never stopped wanting to listen to her talk. I also was excited by who she wanted to talk to for these shows. I'll be back later in the spring, but until then, Mira's got the host mic. There's this distinctly American fantasy about art that comes easily. An artist who seemingly materializes brilliance out of thin air in no time. It's something that we really love to say as if less work somehow makes something even more genius. So if you've been following the trajectory of Sarah Thuncombe Matthews, whose book All This Could Be Different was a finalist for the 2022 National Book Awards, you've heard some version of this, that she wrote the book in four months, that it came out perfectly and brilliantly with little effort. But here's the thing, that story in this case is a huge oversimplification as you'll hear in this interview. It does not consider the decade she spent working on another novel only to have it not hold together. It doesn't consider the time spent holding the heartbreak of having that book not hold together. Above all, it doesn't allow for the reality of Sarah, which is that she works really hard and is still a genius. My partner and I decided to visit friends in LA and um, San Francisco and do a road trip between both those places. And when I was in Big Sur, um, had probably one of the scariest experiences of my life, which was we were on a completely deserted beach, despite it being Big Sur because of mudslides on Highway 1. Um, and I got pulled out by a rip current. Um, and so it was this thing that happened to me that, you know, I really was very changed by, um, it was a ter like a genuinely terrifying moment, partly because it really snuck up on me. Um, you know, all of a sudden, like I, I felt like I was in the most beautiful place in the world at 8am in the morning, like just true paradise splashing in the waves. I'm very much a water baby. I grew up, um, in Oman, a mile away from the beach. Like I love the ocean. I love water. And, um, it very much, my whole life has felt like the place that I belong. And I was so in love with this beach and being in the water after so long that I didn't want to leave. Um, and I, so I just stayed in ice cold Pacific ocean water for like 45 minutes and was body surfing um, by myself at this point. And all of a sudden, I noticed that the cliffs, um, which ring this particular beach, Sand Dollar Beach, were um, all like they had been really large. And all of a sudden, they were tiny at over, uh, you know, the course of five minutes. So the short of it, oh, too wow. late, too late. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, I think the short of it was, um, you know, I, 
experienced, I think, maybe the most harrowing 10 minutes of my life where, um, you know, my partner had gone, and I knew this, my partner had gone to the car to get towels. And he was like, hey, don't like stay out too long. You've been in here for a while. And I was like, I'll, I'll be out in a minute. And then I just stayed. Um, and um, yeah, I basically started swimming like crazy for the shore. And I just remember somewhere in my lizard brain, I remembered, um, you know, that you shouldn't try to swim like directly back to shore. If uh, you're in a rip, you should try to swim. Um, I, I, the actual sciences swim parallel to the shore. Um, but I, but I remembered it as diagonal. Yeah. I remember it's diagonal too. Okay. So it's parallel. Okay. It's parallel. I actually think diagonal probably also saved my life because I really had so little energy left, which is part of the problem. But I think I just had one of those surges of adrenaline that, um, you know, um, like allow moms to like lift cars off of their kids or something. Like I just, I'm not the strongest person. And I just was like, you know, a rip current travels at like eight miles an hour every minute or like eight miles a minute or something crazy like that. So I just was like going and going and going. Um, and, um, when I couldn't, I just knew it was really important to not fully go over to panic, which is very difficult in those moments. And so, um, my brain was just like, don't panic, don't panic. You know, every, like, and every moment that you feel like your arms can't go flip up on your back and scream. And so I just did that. And, um, when I was really striking out with desperation being like, okay, I think this might be the end. <laughs> like, um, I, you know, like maybe 30 seconds later, my feet hit the set, like hit a sandbar. Um, my partner like saw me, you know, like at this point had, had been looking for me. It was a very big beach um, and um, helped like drag me out of the water. I like collapsed on the surf and started like cackling with laughter. So anyways, a long um, and somewhat, you know, harrowing story. But I think the reason why I thought of that was it really changed me in ways that I didn't understand at the time, it felt a little bit like something had been introduced to me that I didn't know what to do with, which was the fact of my own death, <laughs> you know, my own death and mortality and like my, the, 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 the frailty of my body. I think in some ways, you know, like some people do ayahuasca and part of the, the experience that they're looking for is a certain kind of ego death, you know, that happens in this intense way over, um, you know, like a, a six to eight hour stretch or what have you. What I felt like happened to me was that experience of getting dragged out by the current. It was like the sourdough starter of ego death. Um, <laughs> and like, and so I went to, you know, and like four days later, I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop to start an MFA program. And it was very strange. You know, I think that like I really um, was in denial that that happened to me and in fact felt shame um, at sort of letting myself like get into that like situation and didn't talk to many people about it outside of close friends. I didn't tell my parents or what have you because I was just like, well, it would just worry them. And um, I realized in retrospect that I was a pretty messed up over it because I would be meeting people at the like welcome barbecue, um, at Iowa. And I would just like hear, and I, whenever I was get a little bit stressed, I would hear like rushing ocean waves. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think the reason that this 
struck me as a threshold, you know, partly was timing, right? I was like, oh, I'm, I'm ready to change my life, you know, and try to become a writer. But um, when I say it was the sourdough starter of ego death, I think that in moments when I worked on my then project um, and felt doubt, I would think about, I would just have this involuntary returned image of myself like fighting in the waves and I didn't know what to do with that you know I was just like oh, man like I was like eventually I was like well I guess I could go to therapy because <laughs> it's it's free and it's you know or like very affordable in this grad program but over time I think the meaning I made um was that I wanted to write something that went beyond my own vanity and my own desire to see like yeah to see myself reflected in a certain kind of like sh m more shallow or self-serving way um and yeah i think that's that's one of the things that i went back to when i decided after years of trying to make my first novel work um i decided to put it in a drawer, a drawer and um just write something totally different and one of the things one of the images i kept coming back to as i was writing my second novel which became my debut, all this could be different that actually was published, was the image of myself in the waves, like trying for the shoreline, but with a sort of different emotional tenor, which was, you made it to the shoreline before, you will do it again. Wow. There's so many things in there. Also, I should just tell you that as you were saying this story, you can't see me, I was holding on to the couch for dear life. This is my worst, <laughs> my worst fear is actually a riptide. I was caught in a baby one and I almost lost my mind. So I actually can't fathom being in it for 10 minutes and keeping your brain. Cause to me, that time just expanded into like an eternity. It felt like it was maybe a minute and I felt like, Oh, I've just gone. I've, I've been three years in this place and I may never see my home again. Like it was that yeah. the, and the, and the, the water specifically that kind of the sweepingness of it. So it's really interesting to me that both you managed to retain the part of your lizard brain that told you to do this thing, right? Go diagonally. Yeah. But also that in some ways it seems like it's become a callback for you. Yeah. Yeah, it has. In ways that I still don't fully understand. When it was first happening for you, you said you were meeting people and you'd hear the rushing of the ocean did you understand in that moment where you're like, this is the ocean. I have been traumatized. This feels away. Or was it, or was just too much new happening at the moment? <laughs> you know, everyone's really different. I mean, around this stuff, I think there's been a um, real research, like not resurgence, but um, maybe a massification of awareness of the, of the T word, right? Like a lot more people are willing to talk about, um, talk about trauma, you know, understand the, the basic concept of the body keeping the score. Um, and I think the person I was then, you know, this is sort of borderline embarrassing to admit, I was sort of really willing to entertain it as something that happened to other people. For myself, you know, a lot of how I've lived my life from when I was like a young child was sort of wishing to be this brain in a jar, wishing to ignore the fact of um, my body because my body was, you know, at best like a, an inconvenience to everything I wanted to do with my life. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, I 
grew up in an Indian community in Muscat, Oman. Um, I had a decent amount of like gender weirdness as, as a child, you know, I, I, I felt most comfortable as, as a child, um, and felt like felt and looked very genderless. (laughs) Um, and I felt real horror at the idea of becoming a woman and, and particularly because, um, I really grew up in a context where to be a woman was to be second class. Like I, you know, like saw the future that I would have and I didn't want it. Um, so it's sort of impossible to separate, I think, like, um, the question of like the role I felt like I would have and the fact of my body, it wasn't so much about presentation and whether I wanted long hair or short hair, you know, it was very much like, cause you know, I, um, was surrounded by women who presented a whole bunch of different ways, but they all had the same jobs, you know, which was to, um, like whether they worked, um, you know, livelihood producing job or not their job as society ordained was to main, you know, maintain a household, like carry on the tasks of social reproduction, um, in largely unpaid ways and in ways that like husbands, men around them made, made clear that they were lesser than. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that that's sort of part, it's a large part of the answer. Um, and you know, I, I just, as a child, I just remember having this very strong feeling of, oh, like, I wish I just was a mind, you know, (laughs) I think there are ways in which like, if I had, um, been a little bit younger and I'd gotten, you know, like if the internet had come into my life, you know, when I was like eight years old, as opposed to, um, when I was like in my early teens, I think I might've been like a certain kind of like exclusively online person, (laughs) um, (laughs) you know, terminally online person, partly because that, I, I really think the internet can give or could give like a lot of young people, um, especially at, you know, a generation younger than me, that's sort of like, you can actually be like an internet poltergeist without a body and it doesn't actually matter what your embodied self is or does. You can be um, the brain in the jar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mediated, you know, um, mediated by pixels and, um, um, yeah, <laughs> and message boards. So yeah, to, but to, to go, to go back to, um, yeah, I think you're, closer to your original question, um, because we're about 10 tangents away, I think I just felt this real, like looking back, I just think I had very little body awareness. And I also, you know, have just chosen for for a lot of my life to be like, well, here's this thing that I don't know what to do with and seems like a lot. And I have something to do at this moment. And so I'm going to take the thing that feels like a lot and put it in a jar. And like, you know, set it aside and I will open the jar when I have time. (laughs) And I think that's sort of what I did with the, um, you know, when I was like feeling like, like the true loud deafening roar of rushing waves. when I was like meeting my classmates, you know, for the first time, I was like, well, this is unpleasant, but we, we don't got time to deal with it. (laughs) It's like, hello, I'm Sarah. I like came here from DC. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's also, um, so interesting to me is there were two different times where you talked about also sort of the, the shame, like being ashamed of the fact that it happened at all. Right. <laughs> Which is so funny. Cause I was like, what, cause it's really, it's literally, it's nature. Nature happened of to course. you. It was nature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there are all these ways in which like, I, you know, like 
if this happened to me now, I would have had a completely different reaction to it. But I was, you know, in, in my own, my, in my own particular 26 year old way, a baby. Of course. And also it doesn't strike me as like, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm very sympathetic. I feel like I will find fault with myself almost over anything. I'm really good at it. So (laughs) I'm really in sympathy with your 26 year old self. And I, and I also, it's, it's interesting to me, that idea of shame. Like if it were to happen to you now, where do you think, where do you think it would land with you? Yeah, I I don't think my reaction would be shame. I think that I've been the last, you know, um, six or so years, I've really developed a practice that works for me, which is um, like try to document first for my, like both for myself and um, through telling, like through letting people close to me witness me to, I think, interrupt my previous approach of here's this thing that happened it's enormous i don't know how to deal with it and so it goes into like um you know a canning jar and gets pressure sealed and i can open it at some at some point um and i think instead i'm like okay i'm picking up the phone i'm talking to my people i am sort of choosing to let people in when i don't fully know what happened so I, I suspect that it would be a less, like a less control focused, much more trusting of, you know, my actual like earned community approach. The fact of the matter is like, I grew up in a very like shame and honor oriented culture. Um, I think that there are things about that that are not all bad, um, but I I do think that it can really leave a person with a potentially lifelong feeling that's that you are the problem in almost any situation that allows you to make, you know, make the question of your own agency tied up with whatever is happening in front of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just said something that I even when you said it, I, I felt it like deep in my gut, the idea of talking to someone about something when you don't yet know what it means. Yeah. Which to me is always, um, I feel like that as a, as a person who writes stories for a living and who sort of um, looks at life and tries to see the meaning and everything, that might be the hardest thing for me to do in a way to not make it a story to hand it to someone in story form. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Like give them the raw material and say, here are all the things instead of here's the package I've made out of it for you to digest. Yeah, it is very difficult. I mean, it's 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 difficult because it represents, I think, a, just like a f- fundamental um, seeding of control. And it also, I think if you're a storyteller, like one of the fundamental appeals of narrative is you do get to control it. You know, there's so much in life we can't. Um, you know, have a, a degree of management over, but um, in or the 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 power to shape the raw, warped material of everyday life. You know, these sort of incomprehensible realms of data um, or reams of data it, into cogent, understandable narrative for yourself and other people. It's very hard to give up. Thank you.
I'm curious about also the intersection with your work, if we can go there for a moment, because you were working on one kind of a book, right? Mm-hmm. One kind of a book with a with a narrative that, what did you say, kind of a, um, you wanted to give it a heroic, you wanted to see yourself, but also in sort of heroic terms, give that story totally. a larger arc. Yeah, I mean, I feel that. Um, and to be very clear, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. Right. Um, and in fact, I love reading books like that. I love watching films like that. Um, it, it all depends on the execution, right? I think what was happening for me was I was trying to force like the writing to go a certain way in, in a way that wasn't true to the project itself, wasn't true to what was actually on the page. Um, and the, the engines behind my trying to sort of contort the story into something it wasn't supposed to be maybe ever was like the engines of my own ego and my own desire and my own maybe specifically like wounded ego um, as someone who for a lot of my life felt um, some mixture of not being seen and, and, and not being valued for the fact of who I was. Okay. How many years were you working on that book? So I worked on that book, um, I think I would say about seven years. It would probably have been about um, like three, like three or four years. I'm bad at math. Um, at the time I went to grad school, like so. Uh-huh. Um, right in yeah. the middle. Right yeah. in the middle. Yeah. Right in the middle. And then you have this experience and then... Um, and then you said something when you were when you were first telling us the story. You were you were saying that when you went into the second book, mm-hmm. right? This did this come back to you then? This idea again, like you were you back in the waters with this book? Yeah, but in a totally different way. You know, um, I think that in some important ways, I had accessed like a certain kind of ego death um, for for myself. You know, um, and I think it allowed me to say Sarah Matthews doesn't matter. Like, like, but in this particular way, I sort of, you and I talked once and I said it was important for a past version of me to be known like as, as me and, um, the person I am now, it's, it's very important for me to be known, you know, fully and well by people who are actually in my life. And I hope that, um, people out in the world know my work, but I don't care very much at all if they know me. Um, and I, I think that that also, that signals are the kind of, um, uh, transformation that I'm talking about. So my novel, all this could be different, um, is, you know, in short, a, um, coming of age, um, coming of age narrative where this young Indian woman, Sneha has just finished college and she moves to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a city where she knows not a soul um, and holding a decent number of painful secrets with her. And then she reckons with, over the course of the book, her first job, her first love, and her first real friends. Um, And in a lot of ways, the novel is an attempt to sort of start with an atomized and sort of pained everyman and um, who's sort of taking her place as a worker in society and um, trace the journey of this person over time in a way where 
where you start out with an I, you end up with a we. You end up with this group portrait of young people forging community out of love and struggle in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So I say all that for context, um, you know, and to point out that <laughs> the my main character is really quite unheroic, you know. She like, and I I felt like I was able to access notably elevated in my eyes process of art making by not investing her with you know my own concerns of ego i i when i wrote it i was like not worried about how someone was going to see me yeah um you know <laughs> there there have been moments since you know since after the book got published where sometimes i'll become aware of someone going on about you know in some like form or you know the good reads of it all about like how much they couldn't stand her and I feel like a funny kind of prick, uh, but I think for the m- mostly because it's the way some um, some readers have engaged with that sort of character smacks to me a little bit of a certain kind of respectability politics. Like I can't help but notice that we never even we never talk about the question of likability um, if it's a man or a white man, of course. <laughs> um, but I think it was really useful for me to be in this place of having cast aside some degree of ego, like I really just genuinely feel like the person that I was at the time I was entering the waves in Big Sur, you know, at the time I was like, I'm going to write like a big dick immigration novel and, um, you know, about like, and like a queer Malayali American, like Washington DC power broker. Um, and I think that version of me had sort of died actually. Like, and I had, become not a completely different person, but um, someone who is meaningfully differently motivated, I think, in the kinds of things I cared the most about um, and the, the the ways in which I wanted to use like my art making. So I think that when I thought about the waves this time around, they kind of came as like visual and sort of like really vivid memory again and again, but in a warmer friendlier way um i think the when i was writing and particularly when i was writing in the sort of like most intense um stretch of writing the book where i was working on it every single day just like cranking cranking it out as much as i could i would remember the feeling of being in the waves but um the memory was i think less encoded as like helplessness and fear and more the sense of you've done difficult things before you lived, you lived for a reason, at least tell yourself that like, you're going to write your book, you are going to get to the shoreline. And it it was really, it was really uninvited meaning making, you know, I was like, not like, not trying to think about any of that stuff. But it's just sort of what came to me. And I I think I'm a lot more like, (laughs) woo woo about writing than I was, you know, seven years ago. Um, and I think that I think that there are like vaguely mystical things about it sometimes. And I think it's okay to let that stuff border your work and your process. I mean, also when you were talking about, you know, however many years ago it was, it was, I think a little bit more when you were talking about doing the tasks of going to school and you were going to do this and you were going to write, you were going to do mm-hmm. the first, you're going to do the novel, then will be the book of short stories. And one will be one year. And even when you said that, I just was sort of giggling recklessly yeah. inside because, because of like, Oh, it's sort of the best laid plans thing, but also mm-hmm. it really doesn't, it doesn't allow for that, um, 
that thing that happens, which I also believe in that sort of that weird magical sort of portal that can open up where you just have to go in and you see what's there. And, you know, there are times when you're in it and there are times when you're firmly outside of it, but it's sort of right there near you and you have to reckon with it either way. And it's not on the task list. Yes. Yeah. I completely, completely agree with that. I think that there's something that has been lost at times with the increase our increased cultural professionalization around Mm. creative writing. Um, Mm. Yes. I have complicated feelings about it because the fact is the profession such as it existed was, um, you know, a lot whiter, a lot maler. I think that there, there were and continue to be all these barriers to access for people, um, you know, particularly from structural, structurally marginalized backgrounds to like be artists, to share their work, our work. And that really matters to me. So I don't wish to, make it seem like it doesn't. But I will also see people online in particular sort of talk about talk about writing in a way where it's approached like any other industry. Um, and it's approached like that there isn't something borderline magical or mystical and complicated and difficult um, in in this very deep and maybe ancient way. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's good to not conflate the art making and the like industry or publishing of, of it all. And I think that both really matter, but the art making comes first and should come first um, in, in terms of like people figuring that out. Um, you know, I, I, I think that we're just, we live in an attention economy. We live in this um, time where everyone, and, and certainly this, uh, includes like my younger self, right? Are are told like one measure of your worth and value is the content you produce and share with the world. And um, I'm really glad that things happened to me and people talked to me and I went on my own particular journey that left me feeling like there were things that mattered more than you know, creating grist for the content mill, um, and what, and, and that making real art is sort of a, a different matter and, um, a different engagement with time. So all of us just say, I really agree with you, Mira. I mean, I think that the complicated thing is like, I don't know, the, the writing comes when and how it comes and it has to fit into the life you're already living. And there's truly no valor in anything, but following the writing through to where it leads you, you know, to facing the work whatever it is at the moment and making the art that you need to make. Absolutely. I mean, you know, also one of the things that as you're talking, I was thinking about, um, it's not just because you're talking also about ego death. To me, it's also, it's not just that the art must be made and here is the task ahead and the sort of the itemization of it, but it's also the need to be visible in the moment you are making it as the maker, Mm. which I think to me sort of gets in the way of that, of that other thing we're talking about, which is when your ego can sort of let go and let the thing be itself. Yes. Right. Um, I was just reading, um, uh, by the way, yesterday I was just reading Linda Berry's um, What It Is for the Millionth Time. Have you read that? No, I haven't. Oh, I'm going to give you- I love Linda Berry. I'm sending you a copy immediately. I'll just drop it by your house. Um, It is, it's so, it's really just so 
um, brilliant for so many things, but she does talk about, about like this sort of the nervousness around this idea of like, is it good or does it suck? Which is our own, you know, ego problem as we're making art, but also the ability to sit in the silence of that question long enough to let the thing become alive. Mm. Right. I love that. I love that so much. Me too. And the, and the thing that I've realized is it is for me in many ways, the opposite of performing the, the, the art of writing. Do you know what I mean? Like it's the opposite of saying I am writing. I'm a writer and I am writing whenever I'm doing that. I feel like, um, that becomes louder to me in some way than the, than the part of sitting quiet with it, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Like no notes from me. I completely agree with that framing. <laughs> and you know, you know, um, do you remember a few years ago when, um, was it Michaela Cole who, who, um, gave that beautiful speech, um, after, um, what was it? I, will, um, I may destroy you who said, um, don't be afraid to disappear. Yeah, no, I remember that profoundly. Actually, right? yeah, no, it's, you don't, there's there's real wisdom there. It it goes very con like it it goes very counter to a lot of the messages like artists are getting now, like artists of any stripe are getting now, which is make content, be visible, you know, like command your market share in the attention economy. That second book, I know, I know you wrote it. Can we just talk about how much time it took you to write the second book? Because I know you've been working on the first for seven years. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you let that go. And the book that we all know about, all this could be different, right? Yeah. That one that's come out, that, that one you wrote, how long did that take? Yeah. Um, I think it's sometimes more helpful to just like talk about, like rather than give like a one sentence answer. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, I think it's just sort of helpful to sort of like explain the mechanism of how I wrote it. So um, in early in early 2020, um, which is about the time that I was starting to be like, maybe I should just, you know, like freaking give up on th- this other, you know, like seven year long project. Um, and I was like, well, I'm not ready to give it, give it up yet. Um, I'm going to work on a short story. So I started writing these pages of a st- short story, what I thought was a short story that was like about 12 pages. And I was like, I don't even know what this is. Like there's this voice that really makes like is, is burning in my brain, but I don't know the plot. I don't like, just, I can't, I couldn't figure out what it was. And, um, the short story was called Milwaukee. And I was like, Oh, this wants. I was like, this wants to be like a, like disaffected queer love story with like a sarcastic protagonist, like talking shit about her corporate office job. <laughs> and then, I, but then I was like, what's the, thing what actually happens in the story i don't know um and you know it was um sort of a fictionalization of the year that um i i lived in milwaukee in in that short story so uh, not knowing what to do with it and how to create a beginning middle and end i put it aside um uh many things happened in the next five months in my life in 2020 covid came for all of our asses um i lost a bunch of my freelance gigs i um worked through a big, big old depression that I'd been sort of in for, for many months, um, with love and support. Um, and, um, I was doing, 
um, with a whole bunch of other people, um, a, a lot of mutual aid organizing um, starting in March 2020. So like March 2020 to like July or June 2020, that, that was, I was not writing one bit. Um, and then around the, sometime in the summer of 2020, I was talking to like my fellow organizers and I just said, Hey, like, I really want to write a book. I have been thinking about it, you know, like basically every moment that I've been awake, including when I've been, um, you know, including when I've been doing organizing stuff, I feel like I have this like very slim amount of runway because I had just qualified for pandemic unemployment insurance. And I was just sort of frank with them that Bedstai Strong, the mutual aid organization I'd founded, was a full, full-time unpaid job for me, you know? And so I was like, something has to change. And the way I see it at the time was, I was like, maybe I can write this novel, sell it for a little bit of money. And that gives me like more time and the ability to pay my bills. And, um, you know, my fellow organizers who have some, you know, many of whom have become some of my closest friends, um, were like, we got you, we will split up your job, you know, cause it was a job, um, and take on more of the labor of organizing, write your book. Like, you know, there was still the expectation that I come to meetings and do stuff. Like you said, I went from maybe like 45 hours a week of, um, organizing work to, you know, maybe like six, um, a week. And I just wrote like my hair was on fire for, for like four months. Um, and at the end of those four months, I was like, oh shit, I love this book. Um, and it, it really was an experience that I had not had. Wait, hold on. That's amazing. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? You, you really, you, you felt that, like you felt it. I, yeah, I just was like, I mean, I, I don't know, Mira. Like I had really maybe in my life written like one or two other things that were like short stories that I really loved. And so much of my experience with writing, you know, in, in some ways it like reminded me of my experiences, like, like when I was very young of dating, of being like, well, this is awful to like subject myself to, you know, the sort of <laughs> the the pressures of like wanting to be chosen, wanting, you know, all this other stuff. But, but there, there was such desire, like in, I think in both cases, there was like enough desire and hunger to make it worthwhile. But um, I think particularly when I was very young and for a long time in writing, it's not like I was loved back. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not like the writing loved me back. And most often I would come to the end of something and be like, well, I see promise in this, like, but it's not good or great, um, which is kind of a hard, hard thing to feel, especially once you have given up, you know, like a salary and benefits and, you know, a certain kind of uh, position on the escalator of middle class life to try to do a thing that you really love. So I came to the end of yeah the novel I wrote and I was like, I just had this feeling that I can only describe as like, I like, I have to imagine this is what like heroin felt like feels like. I just felt euphoria, like total joy, the like total sheer distilled joy of making something and knowing like this is going to live. Mm. And yeah, I think everything after that happened. So the, so it's, it's, so I think if I was, so, so, and what I mean by that is I found an agent, the agent and I um, worked on revising the book that took um, 
you know, that took like another, I think like three weeks because I was like working like a madman in, in a way that I really don't advise to other people. But I was, I think, <laughs> had some very specific things going on in my life, right? Like I had this feeling that of bills coming due, the need to like get a normal full-time job at some point, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I think all these things like made me work like crazy. I, I also think that like doing a, like organizing work around the clock also had, you know, put me in a sort of different mindset than um, around the work of writing um, where before I'd really tried to approach it as like, well, writing can be like my nine to five or whatever. Um, and yeah, I think, so we sold, we sold the book and then in the year that fall, no, I feel like a lot of people conflate selling a book and publishing a book. Right. And you, you and I know that there's a lot of stuff that happens in between. Um, there were sort of, I think a total of over the, over the year that followed, there was a total of like two and a half months of like intense editing, you know? Um, so, you know, if you add up all, like, so I think that there's sometimes I, conversationally would tell people when they, when they would ask me like, so when did you write your book? Like, when did you actually write it? Was this the book that you'd been working on for a long time? I was like, you know, I, I would be like, no, like this was the book that I mostly wrote in four, you know, like four to five months in 2020. But I think that mostly does a lot of work. You know, I think that the reality is like, especially if you believe that like writing is thinking and, um, and if you believe that, like, as I do, that I needed to sort of make all the mistakes I did with that first unrelated book um, and then sort of use my learning for all this could be different. It's entirely true to say that the process of writing all this could be different took like almost nine years. Yes. I think, and, and I think that a lot of the, like the drafting happened the most intensively in 2020, a year, a year where my life just sort of like molted and reformed like 800 times. Yeah, you know, and I'm so I'm so thank you so much because that's exactly what I I know and I've I know that's the soundbite that goes out all the time. Oh, it was done in 4 months, but I know how much went behind that right mm -hmm. through honestly this thing that you're talking about which is getting pulled out by a riptide, right? Like mm -hmm. so much went in to those 4 months that is unaccounted for in that thing and I and this, I guess the, the reason that I wanted to talk about it a little is because I feel like that it, that to me is sort of the opposite of um, this idea that I think is proliferated, pro excuse me, proliferated and makes other writers feel insane, which is, oh, this work of genius can be done in four months. What have you done? You've been wasting your time, which I don't think is what, I don't think that's your story at all. I think your oh story God, is so no. many things. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I th and I think that's why I've sort of, not always known how to talk about this well because there's I think the you know like desire to be, like be candid and I think what I just everything I shared with you was like the true and candid story right but I think that when I was talking earlier in this conversation about the like I think skewed incentives of professionalized life as a writer I'm really talking about the incentives and mechanisms of capitalism I think it is sort of seeing your work not as art which to me means many things but it it's something that transcends you as a person it's a gift to the future it's all these things and it's sort of setting aside these questions that are like some of them are like ancient and mystical and complicated right for the logic of the marketplace and the attention economy and how am I doing compared to the other people in my cohort? Oh, this person got 
this one other thing more than me, this person got, you know, like $20,000 more than me, you know, for their advance. I completely understand why people care about that stuff. And I would be lying if I said I didn't. But I also think that there's something lost when these become our only metrics. You know, how quick can you produce and for how much? I just am wondering about this one little thing, which is you said you burst out laughing when you got to the shore. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what was in that? Like why the laughing? Um, I don't know. I really don't. Um, I, I remember what it felt like, which was that like a speaker was suspended about 10 feet above me and it was doing the laughing. Like it really, like it really was this moment of like true disconnect from my body. Mm. Um, I think I was glad to be alive. I think I just really spent a lot of the, you know, three hours that followed that, which was me being ice cold, draped in a lot of blankets with the car heat on full while, um, my partner like drove, um, drove us to like the nearest town, you know, and tried to keep conversation with me going, you know, he was really worried about me. Um, and I was kind of loopy. Um, and as an aside, he was the one who was like, I implore you to tell your close friends and to tell people close to you this happened and don't like lock it away in, you know, a wardrobe, um, which is very smart. Um, and I'm glad for that. But, um, I think that the thing that I just felt in my bones was, I'm so glad I'm alive. Threshold is produced by Jordan Kistner and Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshawood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to our hosts at LitHub Radio. You can find more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website, thisisthresholds.com. Don't forget to rate and review our show at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. We'll see you next week. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.